I don't know what time you like to have dinner, but I like to have dinner sometime between about half six and seven uh, of an evening. That's when I usually have dinner. And that means every Sunday at about half past four, I think, what am I going to do? <laughs> yes? Yeah, other people here, can I get an amen to that? Yes? I know. I just, I, I got, basically, every time I eat, I eat. I'm just, I'm hungry. I won't get home till past eight o'clock. I'll be in an awful state by then. My blood sugar goes. Uh, I lose most of my grace. Uh, and so I was like, it's common grace. God gives us these things to work out. And so like, I'm not even hungry yet, but I'm going to eat food now, knowing that I'll need it uh, for later. And it's always difficult. Now, some of you may have been like, oh, maybe I'll keep going this evening. And now you're like, oh, now I'm really hungry. Um, but the good news is uh, we have a meal to eat together today. Now, it's, it's not a huge amount in terms of physical amounts, but we are going to have a meal together. In about half an hour, we'll be offering the Lord's Supper for us to take up uh, and to eat and to drink of it. And uh, it's, a, it's a meal that has many names. Uh, the Bible gives it at least four names. It talks about it as the Lord's Supper and as breaking bread, uh, as communion, which is about sharing and participation. And also it calls it the Eucharist uh, or Thanksgiving. And it's a meal for God's family. And that's why we're looking at it uh, today as part of our We Are Family preaching series. And so if you're our guest here this evening and you're not a Christian, you haven't believed in Jesus, you haven't put your trust in him, you're not following him, we are so glad you're here. Uh, This meal isn't for you. At the moment, this meal is a, a presentation to you of the offer that God's making. The fact that it's actually physically there is just another way in which God's saying, hey, this is for you to take hold of. Uh, but if you haven't believed in that yet, it's not yet for you. But I hope as you uh, examine and hear tonight what this is about, God will speak to you about who he is and his heart for you. And the Bible talks about this meal in several places. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's one of these very honest passages uh, where Paul, uh, the early church leader, speaks to a church who are seriously off the rails in all sorts of ways, one of which is the way in which they take the Lord's Supper together. Um, So let's, let's read starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have, house, uh, yeah, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died." 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Okay, so most of the time when it's, it's time for us to have a meal, what we do is we prepare uh, ourselves for the meal. And uh, maybe it's sourcing uh, the ingredients that are you know, local and organic and, and all those kind of things. You're like, this is how I prepare my meal. I've got to find the right ingredients. Maybe it's just working out the, the temperature on which you're meant to turn up the oven before you throw whatever it is that you bought in from the shop. Or maybe it is opening the Deliveroo app. Whatever it is, usually you are preparing the meal before you eat. But with this meal, the Lord's Supper, the point is to prepare yourself. Our wonderful practical team have got the meal ready, but you need to prepare yourself. And I want us to do this this evening by looking in four different directions that this meal encourages us to look in. It calls us uh, to look back, to look forward, to look in, and to look outward. So we're going to look at all four of those uh, before we share it together. Firstly, we are to look back. Paul says in verse 26 of what we've just read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now, I have, it would, I don't even know why, but I have a really sharp uh, food memory. I'm really good at remembering meals I've had um, at different times in different places. And it's just one of those weird things. I don't necessarily remember what the occasion was, whose wedding it was, for example, or you know, who I was eating the meal with, which is the kind of stuff that's really important. I instead remember what we had for a main course uh, or remember what the, the, you know, the, the starter was or something like that. It's really strange. People say, oh, do you remember so-and-so's wedding? I was like, mm, yes. Oh, yes, we had... And then... Talk about whatever was food was served. Rather, it's just one of those strange things. It just kind of, these things stick in my head. And so, if you are, are ever hosting a meal, some people will be glad uh, and they'll remember it for who knows how long. If they're a bit weird, um, food just sticks in my head in that way. I don't know why. But the point of the Lord's Supper is not to remember what you ate. It's to remember what this meal is about. What this meal is pointing you towards. And as we do this, we realise what Christianity is all about because Christianity is not primarily about an experience. It's not about community even, although both of those things are real and both of those things are part of what it is to be a Christian. But Christianity is rooted in an event. It is rooted in something that happened. Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. There was a Friday in history when he died. And then the following Sunday morning, he rose to new life. And this is the root of Christianity. It's the heart of Christianity. This is what Christianity is all about. We do proclaim experience. We say, come and you have your life touched and changed by God. We do uh, offer community. We say, hey, we're a family together and you can come in and join us. But all of those things come from the fact that something happened. And this is the first direction that this meal encourages us to look in. It tells us to, to go back in time in our imagination to that hill outside Jerusalem, to see the soldiers, to hear the crowd, to watch Jesus be nailed to a crossbeam and raised up into a position of terminal torture, to feel the sky turn black. 
Jesus commanded his followers to eat this meal again and again and again to remind them that that happened, that he died for them. And so we have the bread, which represents Jesus' body, which was given for us. He put his body in a place where we would never want to go. The place of guilty sinners before a holy God. The place of punishment. He went there so that we would never have to. He took our place. And the wine or the juice in this case, which is Jesus' blood shed for us. It paid the price that we could never pay. We didn't have anything valuable enough. As Guy was reading from Psalm 49, say, what's valuable enough uh, to redeem someone? And, and on earth, nothing. But the blood of Jesus is of infinite value. And so it can purchase us for God. It can pay the price that we owe to God. Nothing is more precious than God. And so there's no debt uh, that he can't settle if he gives himself to pay it. Nothing is more powerful than God. And so there's no stain on you or on your past that's so kind of embedded and part of you that he can't remove it if he gives himself to clean it. No one is more faithful than God. So there's no deal that you can break if he gives himself to make it. And at the cross, God made a covenant. He made a deal an eternal commitment of relationship with all those who will put their trust in him. We are given a body to eat. We are given blood to drink. We are eating a body given for us. We are drinking a deal that has been made with us. All this has been done to us. So this meal isn't about you must go and do these things and then God will accept you. It's not you must go and do all these things and then God will love you. No, this meal is an announcement that it has been done. That he has died. That he has made a covenant. That he has acted and done what you could never do. So that you could come into this family. This meal takes us to the cross again and again. It is a remembrance and I was kind of thinking what, what this means, why there is power in that. It's, it's looking back, but it has a present effect as well. So this isn't just nostalgia. This isn't like, oh, it was good that that thing happened back then. I mean, that would be fair enough with the cross because it is amazing. It's an amazing event. But what God wants us to do is to take that moment from the past and experience it again in the present. So uh, my wife, Deb, and I, uh, we met up in the Highlands, uh, just near a lock that has a very beautiful beach. And uh, we go there from time to time uh, to remind ourselves of how it all began. And part of the reason we do that uh, is because it's a beautiful place to go. I imagine if we'd met in the Hive, we wouldn't want to go back. We'd be like, should we go back again? No, it's fine. It's good that we met. Let's move on. But because this is a really romantic setting in the Highlands, we go there again and again. Now, what's happening when we do that? We're recalling that past event, but it has present effects as well. It, it reminds us of how we began. It reminds us, it gives us opportunity to think through everything that's happened since then, for better and for worse. It reminds us of God's goodness to us over the years and of the love that we have for each other. But it does something to us in that moment as well. And we look at each other again and it's, 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 the, it's the same thing, but it's, it's fresh in somehow. And, and that's a remembrance not just nostalgia, those were the days, but remembrance. These are still those days. 
What happened back then is present and real now and applicable now. And so when we look back to the cross, we're to remember that Jesus' love for us is as strong today, as powerful today, as committed today, as it was the day that he died for us on the cross. It's as strong as on the day uh, that he opened our eyes so that we could suddenly see him. There was a moment in your life probably where you suddenly realised, wow, God loves me. If you're a Christian, that happened to you. Sometimes it happens gradually. Sometimes it happens in a flash. But one day you realise it. Wow, he really loves me. And you see your whole life in a new way. He loves you as much today as he did on that day, as he did the day that he died for you, as he does the day of the worst sin you've ever committed. He always loves you in this phenomenal, great way. And this meal says, remember that. Don't forget it. However you come to the meal today, it says to you, Jesus says to you, remember his love for you. Then and now. And when we do this, the power of God is at work in us to change us. So firstly, we're to look back. Secondly, we are to look forward. To complete Paul's sentence in verse 26, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul's doing both a past and a future thing in this moment. So this raises the question, how forward-looking are you? If you were to give an instinctive answer to the question, hey, what's the happy ending for your life? You would probably say, as most people, you're like, well, I want, I want to be in a good relationship. Uh, I want to have enough money. I want to be physically, mentally healthy. I, I would like job satisfaction. If I've got kids, I want them to be okay. Uh, essentially, I would like things that I like to happen on a regular basis. And if that was going on, uh, I would feel happy. That would be a happy ending for me. Now, those things are all fine. They're all, they're all okay. But they're the kind of things that everyone wants regardless of whether or not uh, you're a Christian. And the danger for Christians is that they can start to make those things their hope. These are the things that I want to have happen. And as we wait for them to happen, we say to one another, God has a good plan for your life. And what we mean by that really, when we say that, is those things will happen. Those things will happen to you. You'll have, um, you know, whatever it is that you're wanting. And when you don't get it, when you don't get that job, you don't get that relationship or the house or whatever it is that you wanted, the great news is it's because God's got a better one lined up for you. Now, that does sometimes happen in life. And some of you will have stories of that. You thought, I tried to go for this job, I didn't get it. And then my dream job appeared and I got that instead. And that's wonderful. God can do that because he's able to do whatever he likes. But the thing is, that, that is often as far ahead as we look. Those are where our ambitions are. Those are where our hopes are. The happy ending is in this life. That's what we're saying when we say those things and when we hope in those things. The thing is, this short-sighted future focus cannot endure in the rubble of a bombed-out church building in Sri Lanka. It cannot endure in a prison camp in North Korea cannot endure at a graveside in the UK. It becomes almost a, a, a willful blindness to the fact that this life does have frustration and suffering and evil in it in this present age. The New Testament has a different happy ending. And once you realise this is the happy ending, you'll see it all over the place when you, start, when you read uh, the New Testament. 
The happy ending is this. Jesus is coming back. That is the happy ending. That is the goal. That is when things will get better. That is when you will have those things that will bring you peace and joy and security and comfort and everything. It'll primarily be Jesus because we'll be with him forever. But he at that point is going to bring justice to the, to the, to the whole earth. He's going to bring peace to all. He is going to make all things new and those who have loved him and trust him in this life will be with him forever. That is the happy ending. And if you die trusting in him before that happens, that's your happy ending because you then get taken to be with him. Your life may have been full of disappointments. And you may live decades uh, still to come and you may just experience disappointment after disappointment, trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty, relationally, uh, physically, materially. But your story will have a happy ending that never ends if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you've put your hope in him. And this is what this meal tells us to hope in. Until he comes, Paul says. How does, how does this meal do that? Because we just said it was looking, about looking backwards. Well, firstly, it does it by repetition. Because Jesus commanded us to do this, and there's a, there are only two ways in which we're meant to stop doing this. One of them is we die, and the other is Jesus comes back. And unless and until either of those things happen, we're to keep having this meal together. Because it reminds us of who he is and says, we're going to keep doing this until he says stop and brings about the happy ending that we're all waiting for. But secondly, the meal does this by what it anticipates. So in Isaiah 25, we get a promise of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That is what you will do if you are a Christian. That day will come. You say, I awaited. It was hard. But here it is. And what will happen when that day arrives? You will eat with him. You will feast with him. You will celebrate with him. When he instituted the communion meal, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. That is a callback to Isaiah 25. That is a reminder of this future feast to come that we are invited to and which required Jesus' great Easter labours to prepare for us. And in Revelation 19 verse 9, this, uh, this, uh, this meal feasting arc is concluded when we're told that the end of the present age leads to the marriage supper of Jesus and his church. The bread and the drink that we take tonight, they may not seem like much, but they are a taster, literally a taster of the feasting to come for God's people when the real happy ending arrives. And so when we eat and drink, we should have this, this vibe about us. This is, should be what we feel like. We are anticipating a wedding. 
Often uh, in, in places like the UK, uh, when we take communion, it can seem like we are anticipating a funeral uh, because we get very formal and very quiet and stuff like that. But no, we're anticipating a wedding feast here and a wedding is supposed to be happy. So we will be serious and sober. But then actually when we come to this meal, we, we're to rejoice. We're to reverently rejoice. We don't take it lightly, but we're not miserable about this because this is the best news ever. So we're to look back and we're to look forward. And this is the serious bit. We're also to look in. In verse 28, Paul says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now this is a meal which is meant to do us good. It's meant to give us spiritual um, nourishment. In the the same way that usually when you eat food and drink, drink, that gives you physical nourishment. Well, this meal is meant to give you spiritual nourishment. But Paul warns us that when we do this wrong, it can have deadly consequences, the complete opposite of what it's meant to do. He tells the Corinthians that their attitudes towards each other are so wrong that when they come together, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So you can come and take this and it won't be what it's supposed to be. And instead of it doing you good, it will do you harm. This passage we read, you'll have noticed it, didn't you? You think, there's some pretty serious things in that. There are some really stark warnings. They climax in verses 29 to 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is serious. We need to look in at ourselves to make sure that we are not at risk of doing this. Now, even in that warning, and it is a stern warning, and you're meant to hear it and think, wow, okay, there is grace in it. There is love in it because God is lovingly warning you of the consequences of getting this wrong. He does that because he, does, he doesn't want to punish us. He wants to do us good. But sometimes he just has to get our attention and we don't like listening to him. And so things have to get serious. But as sinners, we're always being offered this hope. God's always saying, hey, look back to the cross. You can go there. You can ask for forgiveness. And then you can take this meal. You think, wow, is God really like that? Yeah, he really is because he really cares for you. He really wants you to realize what's at stake here. So just an example of this happening in the Old Testament. There's a king called Manasseh. He was just one of the worst. There are a lot of bad kings in the Old Testament, but Manasseh's pretty much as bad as it gets. He hated God. He worshipped all sorts of idols. He murdered his own children. He was just awful. And in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 33, uh, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, it says, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So when a a serious thing like that happens, the point is that God wants to restore you. The point is that God wants to bring you lovingly back into good relationship with him and with one another. He wants to address the sin in your life. He usually starts doing that in a quiet way. It's your conscience. It's that thing in you when you're just about to make a decision that says, don't do that. 
It just happens quietly. It's almost like a breeze just blowing in the opposite direction to the, the way you want to move. It's just a twinge in your stomach or something. Or maybe it's when you're reading the Word on a daily basis by yourself or you're hearing it uh, when you're gathered with other Christians and you're thinking, hey, what I'm, what I'm doing and what that Word's saying, they're, just, they're not the same. And, and this is God just saying, hey, come on, come back. Don't go that way. But if you do go that way, God turns the volume up because he really wants your attention because you're heading in a, def- in a difficult direction. And he uses serious events to get our attention. That's what Manasseh experienced. That's what the Corinthians experienced. Now, just to be really clear, not all suffering happens because you're doing things wrong and God is needing to discipline you on that. Okay, so just in the, the pre, literally the previous chapter to the story about Manasseh, there's another king called Hezekiah. He's one of the best kings. He's brilliant. He does loads of good stuff. And in 32 verse 1, it says, they've been doing all these wonderful things and then they got invaded. So invasion isn't necessarily you're, going, you're getting all this wrong, you're doing all this terrible sin and God wants to grab your attention. Sometimes just bad things happen to us. Paul's entire career as he obeyed Jesus was hard. So it's not a simple kind of like bad things means that you've been doing bad. It's not that. But when things are serious, when things seriously are going on in our lives, God is often using that to get our attention. And at the least, we need to say to him, Lord, we need to look in and say, Lord, is, am, I, am I missing something here? Are you wanting to speak to me? Have I been ignoring you and you're needing to shout? So the Corinthians, this was what was going on for them. Paul says that they're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. What does he mean by that? Well, in verse 18, he talks about them being divisive. They are picking fights. Uh, They're taking sides. They're taking offenses. They're making others feel worse to make themselves feel better. They're forming cliques. They're forming inner circles. Uh, They are just saying, hey, I'm good. No, not you. Thanks. No, Ah, but you're, yeah, we'll be friends, but they can't be. That kind of thing. Paul hates that. The gospel hates that. In verses 21 to 22, they're being selfish. They're putting themselves first and others last, which is the complete opposite of what Jesus is. And so if you say you follow Jesus and then you put yourself first and others uh, last, you're getting it wrong. It seems that for the Corinthians, they were just, some of the guys, the richer ones, were just eating loads and loads of bread, drinking loads and loads of wine. And then those who were poorer, uh, they, they had nothing there. Paul summarizes this as not discerning the body. What does that mean? Well, in chapters either side of chapter 11, in chapter 10, verse 17, chapter 12, verse 27, Paul says that the church is Jesus' body. So what he's saying here is that the way you're acting, Corinthians, is you're taking no notice of your fellow believers. You're the body of Christ, these people around you. This means that how Christians treat other Christians is how we treat Jesus. And most of the time when we're treating other people, we don't think of it that way, do we? <laughs> because they don't look like him. They're not acting like him. And so we're treating them as they are. But Jesus says, Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. So we must look in our hearts before we take communion. How are we relating to the rest of our church family? Are there people here that we treat as enemies? Now, if you have been a Christian for a while, you'll, you'll know enemies are a bad word. You're not supposed to have enemies. You might have people who you've got serious disagreements on values. Or they said these things to you and it was awful and this kind of stuff. But if someone was doing an honest assessment of your attitude towards them, enemy would be the word they use. 
but you might want to dodge out of it. And I'm just asking you tonight, yeah, but are they? There may be other people, they're just an inconvenience. They're just a drain on you. They're just frustrating to you. And then maybe, yeah, others, they're just invisible to you. You come in, you see your friends, you take the meal, you sing the songs, then you go again. If our relationships in church are in these kind of conditions, we've got enemies, we've got inconveniences, and we're just not noticing people, we should not take this meal until we've repented of that and done all that we can to heal and restore those relationships. That's the, that's the serious nature of this warning. If there are people in this church family who you've fallen out with and not done everything that you can do to be reconciled with them, if you have um, anger or festering bitterness within you towards them and this causes you to treat them differently, speak wrongly about them, uh, think wrongly about them, then you should not take this meal until you have dealt with that situation. The Holy Spirit may have been trying to get your attention on this for a while and you've just, it's been kind of going along. He's getting your attention right now. Yeah, he's speaking to you directly now. This is a moment not to ignore him. Look in at your words, at your deeds, at your thoughts. You might need the help of another Christian to discern this. And you know, they, Have they maybe noticed your attitude towards someone else? Or uh, if you just describe the things you feel about this person, the things you've said about this person or to this person, do they recoil in a kind of, oh my goodness, that's not right, or are they like, oh yeah, you're totally right. You know, ask them for help because we, we need one another to discern this. Be honest with how you're feeling and how you're acting so that they can give you honest counsel in return. And what do you do if you realize, oh, I have been doing that. I have been living in that way. What do I do? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to confess your sin to God because all sin is ultimately against him. You need to tell him what you've been doing. Don't make excuses for it. Don't say, well, of course, God, they started it. He's not interested in them right now. He's talking about you. He's dealing with you. Ask him to forgive you. Say to him, Jesus, you died for me to deal with this sin. Please, would you take it away from me? He will. He will. Because he loves you. And he wants that poison out of you. After confession, we're to repent which is uh, to turn away from that way of doing it. Not just say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I'm going to go do it again now. No, we, we turn away from that old way of living. What is with doing or saying or thinking. If it's appropriate, go to that person. If, if they know there's tension between you, if there's been arguments between you or whatever, go to that person, ask their forgiveness. Don't put any condition on it. Just say, I'm sorry. And they may not even know what to do with that, or they may not even do something right with it. That's not your responsibility. Now, if someone, you've just struggled with thoughts about them, you've kind of uh, noticed them in a wrong way, or they've got something you wish you had, and it's been difficult for you, they're around, you probably don't need to go and tell them that. Yeah, because not everyone who we have kind of thought challenges about, you don't need to go and tell everyone that and say, everyone, say everything that you've struggled with because of them. But you do need to confess it to God. You do need to repent of it. And you do need to start thinking and acting differently towards that person. Your responsibility is to have a Christ-like attitude to them, however they've treated you, to recognize that you are part of the same body as them, part of the same family as them. Our goal, each of us together and as a church, 
is to serve and bless all the members of our church family as Jesus serves and blesses us. And actually, breaking bread helps this. Communion gives us grace for union with each other. Because Jesus works in us as we take this. And he's full of love for those other people who are so difficult. And this is therefore leading us into the final direction we need to look in. We need to look out. Paul says about discerning the body. You cannot take this meal by yourself. That's not how it goes. Meals aren't just about satisfying hunger. They express welcome, association, unity. The word companion means with bread. A companion, a friend, is someone who we have bread with. We are Jesus' companions. More than that, actually, we're his family. God the Father, if you're a Christian, has adopted you as his child. And that means you've suddenly got loads of siblings. And we've got to get on with them. And this bread and this juice tell us that this is a family meal. Jesus gave his body for all. Not just for you, for all. And the covenant that he made with you is the same covenant that he's made with everyone. He didn't make a series of individual deals. It's one covenant that we are all brought into. Paul criticizes the Corinthians for being greedy and for being drunk, not just because those are bad things, although they are, but what he criticizes them for in this context is what they lead to. He said, because you eat all the bread, someone else can't. Because you drink all the wine, someone else can't. And that's not how it works. You're supposed to be looking out for others, not in at yourself in that way. He says, you can eat and drink at home, but you can only have communion together as God's family. You can only experience the grace and the goodness when we take it together. The early Christians got hold of this so well that their meals were known as love feasts. It's in the Bible, Jude verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. You're like, man, Christian cringe started so early. But this is actually, the reason they called it that was because this is a restoration of the divisions that are caused by sin that go all the way back to Adam and Eve. The moment they'd rebelled against God, they recoiled from one another. And we have been divided against each other ever since. Jesus came to heal this. Jesus came to bring us back to him and to one another in love. And so as we take this meal, you're to look around. You're to look out at everyone else who's here taking it with you. Look at what God's done in saving all these different types of people from all these different stories, all these different nations, all these different personalities, all these different backgrounds. Everyone here needed Jesus to die for their sins. Everyone here needed Jesus to shed his blood to bring them into a covenant of grace. When you kneel before the cross, you're the same height as everyone else is doing it. There's no scope for feeling superior or inferior to anyone else. You just look around and think, man, God saved all of us. That's amazing. Each person is precious in his sight. He made them. He loves them. He sent his son to die for them. Look around you as you take this meal. These people who God's called you to serve and to bless and to care for and to encourage and to smile at and to sing with and to put up with. You're going to spend forever with them. You're like, really? Yes, great news. They'll be changed. Even better news, so will you. There is one crowd 
before one throne. There is one feast. We will not be in individual rooms with God just dealing with us individually. We won't even be in groups of preference. We will be one. And this meal is a sign of that and an anticipation of that. And the church family is meant to be a demonstration of that now. God wants to get that party started today. There's power in breaking bread together. Whether the person next to you this evening is the most important person in your life or you've only just met them. If they are having this meal, then they are family and you're called to love them.